Well, good morning. Good morning. Anyway, we're delighted that you're here with us today. Um, I don't know if you ever had this experience. Sometimes I'll be trying to tell a story, and, um, and I'll say something like, yeah, and I took three or four steps, and a family member will correct me and say, no, I think it was six steps. <laughs> Have you ever had those kinds of experiences, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and in my mind, I don't always verbalize, but in my mind at least, I normally think or say, it doesn't matter. It, really, it doesn't matter. And some things in life are that way, aren't they? You say to yourself, it doesn't matter that detail. Like, who cares? Let it go. But other things do matter, don't they? At least to some of us. If I say Pittsburgh Steelers or Philadelphia Eagles or New York Giants, for some people, it matters. And for others... They could care less. Hey, so there's items like that. Eh, it matters to some, doesn't matter to others. But then if I start talking about things like financial security, family, job, for most of us, that really matters, doesn't it? What would be on God's list? of things that really matter. So we look at this new year and we say, God, what matters to you? Well, there'll be a lot of things on that list, but over the next five weeks, we want to look at one thing that matters to God, and that's the church. So you have a handout there in your notes if you want to use it, you can. You probably should just because I'm supposed to go three chapters in about 17 minutes, so hold on, okay? But here's what I want to do. I want you to think for just a minute. When Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, he's sitting in prison. He writes Colossians at the same time. And in Colossians, Paul emphasizes the Christ of the church. And in Ephesians, Christ is exalted also, but he puts accent on the church of Christ. And what does he say? And this is, it's so fascinating to me. When he writes the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters are all filled with praise and prayer. He goes back and forth. Praise the God, prayer, praise, prayer. Just kind of moves back and forth that way. And the idea is by the time you get out of the first three chapters of Ephesians, you're going like, wow, God is good. Wow, he loves me. And I, I just... I want to experience that more intimately in my life. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he talks to us about how we can actually do that by giving us direct, specific commands. But for three chapters, he overwhelms us. I want you to just see what he says, and I want you to see how the church is so important in that entire process. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, actually, in the Greek... It's one really long sentence. Now, the English translations break it up and put a bunch of periods in it, and we're really glad they do. Okay, we're really glad they do. But it starts out by saying this in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. 
just as, and then he's going to begin to tell us the things that he's done for us. Folks, this isn't new stuff. But Paul starts out the book of Ephesians by saying, God is wonderful. Look back. He has chosen us in Christ. It's all about being in Christ, isn't it? All the way through Ephesians, it's in Christ. He has chosen us in Christ to be holy and blameless. I mean, this is God's work. Some of the things. he's, He's predestined us to adoption. Isn't that wonderful? You are part of the family of God. In him, verse 7, we have redemption. In him, he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in Jesus Christ. In other words, in ages back, as God was about working out his purposes in the Old Testament, talking about the future, there's an aspect of it that there was a mystery. And in the coming of Christ, and in the coming of the church, and in the coming of everything that God is now doing, you look back and you say, oh, I see how it's all pointing to him. It's so clear to me now. And he cuts loose, and he says, you have Jesus. You have adoption. You are redeemed. You are given the Spirit as a down payment and a surety that you will stand in the presence of God one day. And he he just cuts loose in those first 14 verses. It's wonderful. I feel like I'm almost blasphemous moving through it so quickly, but I have to. In verse 15, remember I say he moves from praise to prayer? For this reason, verse 15, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists in you all, and your love for all the saints, I don't cease giving thanks to God while making mention of you in my prayer that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Now, the word spirit could mean one of two things, right? Could either mean the Holy Spirit or it could mean your spirit. And translations go both ways on this. I think it's talking about the Holy Spirit here. And you say, but haven't we already been given the Spirit? Didn't he just say that? Of course. But what he prays for in this passage is, you know what? In light of the fact that God is wonderful and he's done all this for us in Jesus Christ, what I pray for is that you would experience the reality of that in your life. You know the difference, don't you? You know there's things in our spiritual lives, if I say, you're redeemed. And you go, yeah. Yeah, I got that one. <laughs> redeemed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And there's other times when I say, you know, you're redeemed. And in your soul, you go like, holy mackerel, that's good. Don't you? This is a prayer for holy mackerel. <laughs> that the spirit of God, who we have, would enliven our souls to see that The hope of our calling is absolutely certain. And the inheritance that awaits us in the future is more than you can possibly imagine in your dreams. Think of the very best thing that heaven could be. And folks, 
It's better. He says something else in the prayer. Holy mackerel. That's right. That's exactly right. That's what he wants. And he says this also in verse 19 when he talks about the prayer. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? In accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ Jesus. You know what he does? He says, God, not only do I want you to open the eyes of your people so that they can experience and embrace at a deep level the reality of their salvation, but I pray that you'll give them power. Power to live out the Christian life. And that power is, is the same power that you use, God, to raise Jesus from the grave to seat him at your right hand, to put all authorities underneath him. And I'm thinking like this baby is really building. You know what the last one is? And to make him head over the church. You know, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking like he would say something and make you the cosmic Lord. Doesn't it fascinate you that the church is so important to him? That the last item he talks about is Christ as the head of the church, which is his body, verse 23, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That boggles me. You know what that's saying? God dwells among us. It is the fullness. It is this place which is filled with his presence as a foretaste of everything he's going to do in the new heavens and the new earth. The church is to be a little bit of a foretaste of the God who one day will fill all in all. Isn't that amazing? And he says, that power that did all of that in Jesus Christ and made him head over the, over the church, a church which is to be a foretaste of what is to come. Do you think the church matters to God? Folks, we are so privileged. We have been just lavished with his grace. And as we sang today, as we go into this new year, let's allow what matters to God to matter to us. Paul wants to give you another round, though, in chapter 2. It's back to praise again. All the way through chapter 2, he says, okay, I want to go back and talk to you about this salvation thing again. I mean, I kind of talked to you about from God's perspective, and I'm going to get there again, but let me talk to you about the problem. And what he does in chapter 2 is this. He says, folks, I want you to think back to the problem, which is the fact that you were lost and dead and without hope in this world. Everything was against you. Satan was against you. Your flesh was against you. You were under God's wrath. Children's of disobedience. You were lost. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, while we were dead, he made us alive. You know Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's you. And Paul says, 
Apostles, look, Ephesians. I know people at Ephesus. I know I'm sitting in prison. But you know what? God is wonderful. May we believe it, embrace it, live it. When I was dead, he made me alive. And, and I love this. Listen to what he says in verse 7. He not only made us alive, but he also raised us up with Jesus and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Uh, it's kind of a little bit of a strange statement because you read things and say, like, well, I think I'm sitting right here right now, actually. Aren't I in a chair on earth? You are. But positionally, you have been so connected to Jesus that you are with him too. How secure is that, folks? That's off the chart secure. I love this verse 7. In order that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You know, for millions and millions of years in eternity, we're going to keep going, wow, no, you're kidding, what? Without, what? I'm telling you. So we're just going to get to heaven and he's just going to say like, oh, I didn't know, what? I didn't even understand that one. You're kidding me. It's, it, it's going to boggle our minds. And you turn, isn't that what he says? It's going to lavish his grace and we keep going like, it was deeper than I ever thought. Yeah. Yeah. Because I will take the individual who's dead. I will unite him to Christ. And for all eternity, we will bask in his grace. But, but Paul says, can I talk to you about something else? The end of chapter 2. It's not just what he did in your life individually. It's what he has done among us as his people. And so in the first century, it wasn't all unusual to break off things, Jews and Gentiles. Don't we do the same thing in our day? Certain countries, if you lived in India, there's a whole social caste system, isn't there? And in most cultures, there's ethnic tension or social tension, economic tension, class tension, whatever. And in this passage, Paul talks about the tension between Jew and Gentile and he says, you know what, in Jesus Christ, Gentiles who always felt like they were outsiders and strangers and could not be part of it, it's gone. And you are in Christ as a people. God doesn't look at us primarily based on the color of our skin or how much money we make or any of those things. You know how he looks at us? In Christ. Because at the core of myself, I am not, most important thing is not that I'm an American. It's that I'm a Christian. And that's true of you too. And he has brought people who are diverse and you think could never get together, together into one new humanity. Which he goes on to say at the end of the chapter is not only a new humanity, it's a brand new temple. Do you know the temple imagery is used for you both as an individual Christian, 
and corporately as a group of who we are in Jesus Christ. Now, one thing's for sure about temples. They're holy places. Do you know God is among us in a very special way as his people? And the church is about bringing people who should never be able to get together together as a new humanity, a holy people, a body which is united to Jesus and connected to one another in a way that you can't possibly imagine. So Paul again looks and says, isn't God incredible? And he says, so I have to pray about it. <laughs> and that's what happens in chapter 3. Look, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, what he does here is this. He wants to pray, but he doesn't actually get to his prayer to verse 14. Because, you know, Paul's like us. Have you ever gone on rabbit trails when you talk to people? We, we do that all the time. Yeah. Some of us are better than others at that, right? Okay. Paul does a kind of a rabbit trail. He just again comes out of this, God, look at what he's done for us individually. What did, look at what he's done for us corporately. And he was, for this reason, and he's ready to pray again, for I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he thinks to himself, wait a second, I'm writing to these guys from prison. They're going to think like, bummer, I'm sitting in prison because I proclaim Jesus. That must be a bummer. And Paul goes, no, 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 no. And, and what he does in verses 2 down through verse 13 is he says, don't ever say that about me. I don't care if I'm in prison. I don't care where you put me. I don't care what you say about me. I am actually able to tell people about this good news. Jew and Gentile brought together. Oneness. All about Christ who's going to win at the end of the day. I get to tell people. And whether I'm in prison or not, it doesn't matter. It's okay. And kind of gets off of that rabbit trail. He says, okay, where was I? Oh, yes, I was going to do this prayer thing. Back to it, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Again, the work of the spirit working in my heart. What do you want to do, Paul, coming out of this incredible truth of who you are? What is it that you pray? I want you to know the Spirit's strength in the inside so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that Christ will be at home. My kids have come home only for a short period of time. I love the holidays. All but my son from China who wasn't able to come. When they come into my home, I want them to feel at home. I mean, if you come to my home, and the first thing you do is walk over to my refrigerator and open it, that makes me a little bit edgy. But if Matthew comes home and makes a beeline at midnight <clears throat> and opens it up and gets out leftovers and cooks them till one in the morning and then eats it, as long as he's quiet, that's fine with me. I want him to be at home. In this passage, God says, the blessed Lord who has done so much for us, in light of our salvation, we want him to be at home in our hearts. So that, look at this. So that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth and length and height and depth 
and to know the love of Christ which surpasses all other knowledge. You know what he says? I want Christ to be so at home at your life that when you guys get together as a church, you know what you talk about? Christ's love. Stephanie, how high do you think it is? Well, I think it's this high because I've seen God do this. Dave, how broad is it? How deep is it? How long is it? And, and I, isn't Jesus wonderful? That's what he wants. We are so overwhelmed personally that when we get together, we spill out with all the saints. Oh, how he loves you and me. We do it when we sing, don't we? We just raise our hands and we think, God, we love you. And that's, that's so right. We should do it when we eat, too. We should do it during the week. We should get together informally, structured, whatever. Talk about Jesus so that, look at this in verse um, 19, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Well, I thought we were already the fullness of God as the church. You are, positionally. Paul says, I want you practically to live that out in your life. What happens in the new year if we're overwhelmed with God? Christ is at home in our hearts. Spirit is empowering us. When we get together, we just over we just talk of his love. Try to explore it and explain it in ways that we can't possibly. We begin to look like what God has always intended us to be from the beginning. Three pictures, I'm going to let Tim kind of expound on these however he chooses to. Three pictures surface you can see there in your notes. We are the body of Christ, which means we have intimate union with him. Folks, I don't fully understand this, how the God of the universe would become a man and his great passion is to be united to us. He wants to be our head. He wants to rule our lives. He wants to transform us. He wants us to glorify the Father. He's committed to us. It's just amazing to me. And when people touch you, they touch him. Because you're part of his body. God's temple, it's a holy abode. We are a new humanity. Everything that was lost in Adam can begin to slowly be realized in the church. So I'd want to say this. The church should matter to us because the church matters to God. If the church matters to us, what might that look like in our lives? Over this uh, last few days, had the privilege of having our children home, which has been a lot of fun and enjoyable. But there's a part of it that to me is profoundly frustrating. We've been playing this game that Carmelo Kara introduced me to called Settlers of Catan. Now, how many of you have heard of that game? It's like torture, okay? It's a lot of fun, but it's like torture. You spend a whole lot of time. Uh, collecting, playing, planning, some scheming. And at the end of the day, uh, success is dependent upon the roll of the dice. I just find that really frustrating. 
when the plans I have for what's happening are dashed by what I roll, okay? That's just exceedingly frustrating. And here's the way I resolve the tension and the frustration in my heart. It doesn't matter. Now, when I'm playing, it seems like it matters. But at the end of the day, we have to be honest and say, it really doesn't matter. What Doug has introduced us to and what God has called us into as the body of Christ matters. It matters more than we can comprehend, understand, and realize. And I, as, as a pastor for 25 plus years now, I have wrestled with the thought of how do we, understanding the Spirit of God has to turn the lights on and let people see these things for what they really are. How do we get to the place where we really understand that the church matters? That our gathering together and the, the plans that God has for us, that it really matters in light of what Doug's laid out for you. We are precious in the eyes of God. So we know that it matters. My question is, and the thing I want to try to address briefly is, how do we come to the place where we cultivate in our hearts this truth that the body of Christ matters? How can I live as if it really makes a difference in my life? And I think one of the things we have to do, first of all, is become people who are brutally honest and realistic. You realize how many people walk away from the church because they have been disappointed. They've been discouraged. They've been hurt. I can say this. Uh, when I think about the church, I, I think this way. I've spent my life, my whole life, primarily in two locations in church life. I've spent half my church life here, and I've spent half my church life in Lansdale, Pennsylvania. When I think about the church, I have memories of it that are fond, um, enjoyable, the joy of fellowship, seeing God clearly in seasons of corporate worship, uh, learning how to live wisely as the word of God is taught and proclaimed, sensing conviction by the work of the Spirit of God about things in my life, particularly at one point in my life where it had to change, where my rebellion against God had to be given up and I had to yield myself to his purposes. All of that happening in the context of the church, the blessing of joining together to celebrate uh, wonderful events, the blessing of grieving together and sharing that burden in the context of the church. Seeing lives changed by the gospel. Thinking back to watching people walk down the aisle of the church just breaking free from drugs and then in 10 years standing in a pulpit preaching the gospel. There isn't anything better than that. But here's the truth. Okay, in the context of where things should be all that, there's also disappointments. And if you're new to our church, here's what we want you to know. We're going to let you down. Okay, we're going to disappoint you. If you've come here looking for the perfect church, you're probably not going to help us. <laughs> uh, the joke goes, if you find a perfect church to join, don't, you'll ruin it. Okay? <laughs> We all bring baggage into church. Every one of us has issues. Every one of us struggles. We're, we, we are a context of people that have been, re been redeemed and are being redeemed for the glory of God. We all wrestle. We all struggle. Church life, because it's highly relational, is more prone to those types of struggles. And if you let them blow you out of the water, you're going to find yourself feeling like a spiritual Super Bowl your whole life. Jumping and gaining momentum and jumping. Understand this, the church is a, a place where there is humanity, a new humanity, but it's a humanity that struggles with living together. We need to learn to, to work at that. 
We are imperfect, but the great thing is that God has a way for us to deal with our imperfections. Confess your faults one to another. Grow up and deal with it. This is what we say to our kids. It's what God says to his church. The problem is that we often tend to cherish our hurts and they end up binding us and holding us back and excusing weak commitment to what God loves. And then we live with ambivalence because the most important thing in life isn't valued and I wonder why I'm not happy. Folks, you can't be happy until you love what God loves more than he loves anything else. And what God loves more than anything else is his church. Because it's the one institution that lasts forever. And he, by his rich grace, has drawn you into this environment. I think it's important if we're going to love the church and really embrace the idea that church matters. That we have to be honest and realistic with each other. Not blow up on each other when we fail each other. But come to a place where we live with maturity, realizing, you know what, that happens to me too. If, if you are in a place today where you are cherishing wounds, you will never love what God loves. You can't because you're way too concerned about yourself. And God wants you to come to a place of freedom. The second thing I would suggest is this. I would suggest that you pray seriously and ask God for a clearer, stronger vision of the church. And I, I think one of the things that Doug touched on that runs through this text is that Paul is incessant in his prayer for the believers in the church, that they would come to understand. And notice, the prayers are interspersed with pictures of the church. And so pray seriously and ask God to give you an appreciation of what it is that he's called you into. If you're a newer believer, God, help me to understand the glory of this thing called the church where we experience life together and Christ together for your glory. Paul lays out three pictures and intersperses around it two prayers. Dominant concern is this. He prays that you would know. Not mere intellectual assent. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. But that you would know as a conviction in your heart that what God is doing in the context of the church matters dearly to him. He paints for us three very simple pictures. The first one is in chapter one, we are his body. And just want to read these verses real quickly. We are his body, verse 22. And God has placed all things under his, that is Christ's feet, and anointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's an amazing statement. We are the body of Christ. We, corporately, together, are the fullness of Jesus in this age. That should blow your mind. Where are people going to see Jesus? They're going to see Jesus when they look at you. The question is, what kind of Jesus are they going to see? Are they going to see a Jesus that is filled with all of his divine attributes, filled with his glory, filled with his love, filled with his passions? Or are they going to see a distorted Jesus who looks kind of like the real thing but really isn't and leaves people disappointed, sad, and frustrated? The second picture he uses as he prays, is that we would see that we are the family of God. Look at verse 19 of chapter 2. Verse 19. Consequently, as a result of God's work in bringing us together in the gospel, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Now, 
that to me is an amazing thought. Because if you were to say, in what context are affections deepest and strongest? I would say it's in the context of family. And when, when Paul wants us to grasp what the church is to be like in terms of deep love and affections, he uses the human family as an analogy. We are God's household. The father of the house is Jesus. He's drawing us together into a glorious, rich, deep relationship. And the more we value that and understand that and ask God to show us the truth of that, it will change how we relate to each other. We will see that we have a responsibility to one another as family. To love and to encourage and at times to challenge. We're family. We're his body. His visible representation. The fullness of God. And then the last thing he says in verse 2. In chapter 2 and verse 22. He says in him you two are being built together. To become a dwelling. In which God lives by his spirit. And that is one of the most amazing truths. Because that kind of takes Christmas and makes it very personal, doesn't it? If Emmanuel is God with us, then the Spirit of God taking up residence in our life means that God desires to manifest His presence to the world around us through us corporately gathered, through us living life together as the body of Christ with a deep commitment to one another. The church is His manifest power. And the last analogy that's used in Ephesians in chapter 5 is that we are the bride of Christ. We are to demonstrate the glory of Christ by being a beautiful bride adorned for him. Now, here's the one thing you gain as a conviction as you read through all of these pictures. Every one of these requires more than one part. None of them is complete by any one individual is the theme here. And John Stott says this, He's reading in a book, his, his reflections on being a, li a lifelong pastor. He says this. He says, there is no category for unchurched believers in the Bible. And here's what he calls an unchurched believer. Okay? He calls it a grotesque analogy. This is a guy who's really soft in his language, a gentleman, a bachelor's whole life, an amazing man. But he calls this idea of Christians not part of the body, the temple, the household, the bride. A grotesque analogy, meaning this. It distorts what God is doing when I make it about me. Okay, because I become very selfish and I start thinking in terms of what I want from the church and what I want in the church and what I want from God. When God has called us into things that all by definition have many parts and we all come together to make her, the body of Christ, effective as a witness for God. All right, and so, so what does Paul do? Paul prays that the people in Ephesus would get it. Would, and here's would be our prayer, is that God would cause us to realize that when we gather together on Sunday morning, that's not it. Okay, I don't come, check in, and check out. I am part of something organically is the way this works, or mechanically is the way that it works. I am in a permanent relationship as the bride of Christ. As the body of Christ, I have interdependency. As the temple of God, we're making up all different parts, a place where God dwells in us in, in, cumulatively or together. So may God help us to be honest and realistic about the church. May God help us to pray that we would understand the power and glory of the church. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever prayed, like earnestly prayed, that God would give you a clear understanding of your place in the church, understanding that she is the prize of Christ? To say, God, 
Help me to get what, the, what I'm sitting in right now this morning. Help me to get it. At a deeper level than just, I, I, I can mechanically spit out the words that the churches, the body of Christ called out of the world to be together. Help me to understand that in the analogies that he uses, he loads that term church with weight, with significance, with purpose. And Paul says, I pray that you will know it, that you will understand it in a way that totally changes you. So I ask you that question. Is that, as you pray, do you say, when you pray about your church family, God, help me to see what it is that you're trying to do. Help me to see the magnificence of these analogies of these images. And the last thing I would challenge you with as a way to value the church, to see that it really matters to God, is to commit to glorifying God by committing in a serious way to what God is doing in the church. I'm going to say, you know what? I want to be full on for God in his church family. I don't want to be a spectator who watches what the church is doing. And that's honestly how, and we live in a culture that promotes that. Where we have professional ministers who carry so much of the load that many people don't feel important. But they matter. Here's the way Paul says it in the last two verses of chapter 3. He says at the end of this prayer, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we all ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work in us, to him be glory, where? In the church. Okay, God wants to glorify his name through you. And he's drawn you by his sovereign grace into a relationship that is like a building, that's like a body, that's like a family, that's like a bride. And he wants Jesus Christ to be glorified in the church throughout all generations forever and ever. Now, here's what blew my mind when I read through this. He wants the church to be glorified and he wants Christ to be glorified. Well, which is it? Which is it? He wants both to be glorified because the church exists for the glory of Christ. It is the representation of what he by his blood has purchased. And the glory that goes to the church is a glory that is forever. The glory of the church is forever. Folks, I want you to think about this. If I said to you, what's the most important thing in your life? Most people, most good Americans would say my family. Because we tend to gravitate towards the things that get us respect. And what most people want to be known as is a good parent. If they're married and have children. You know what God wants us to be known as? Good brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. In, in my uh, 54th year, I've come to an interesting realization. My family, and understand how I say this. My family is not forever. But we live as if it is. I'm going to tell you what that leads to. That leads to profound disappointment. Because when I think that way, you know what I want? I want all my girls in my house. And that's just weird. Okay? That's what I want. But it is not the design of God. I tell people in premarital counseling, when you get married, you spin off and you become what your parents are. So that my daughter is sitting in front of me, 
married to this young man from Missouri, <laughs> have become what we are. So my relationship with her, and I think about this because I'm always like, how does this work? She's my little girl. She's my honey. <laughs> he calls her that. And I'm thinking, <laughs> here's what I realize. I live in an empty house, me and my wife, because family is not forever. You know where most of your frustrations in life come from? Family. Because you treat it like it's more important than the body of Christ. And when you do that, you've switched the price tags and you've overweighted. Now, I'm never saying that the family and the church are in conflict. I totally disagree with that analogy. But I do believe this with all my heart. That which is eternal is that which we should value the most. I'm going to say it this way. It and it's almost weird. Now I'm thinking, am I going to be heretical? I mean, can we say that at some level the church matters by this definition, that it is forever, that it matters more? And that all you parents who love your kids are thinking, oh my word, how do I work this out? Okay, well, you've got to wrestle with that. And you ought to wrestle with it in prayer to say, God, how do I value what is best for my kids to see me value? It's not valuing them. It's valuing him. And it's committing to what he's committed to. When you make that commitment, this relationship is perfect. And mine's imperfect because I tend to want to love them more. So what God did to give me a clear picture, move one daughter to Houston and one to Missouri, <laughs> okay? I don't like that, but I'm like, I get it. I get it. The church is what matters, folks. And since it is eternal in its purpose and calling, in the glory of the gospel that Doug explained brings it together. You have to ask yourself, do I love the church like that? Do I love it that much? Can we be honest and say most of us don't? Because we don't love what Christ loves. Christ loves the church. You know what makes a good church? Strong families. Devoted husbands and wives. Children that honor God. That makes a church strong. But the purpose of that even is to build what matters most. And what matters most is that which is eternal. May God help you this morning, if you don't know Christ, to realize that Jesus Christ died to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. And folks, what is the church? It is a group of people that have been redeemed brought together, who are, by definition, his very own. And when we understand that, we will love the church like Christ does, and our relationships with one another will progress in spite of hurts. I believe when we see the value of the church, we're going to begin to pray and say, God, I, by the Spirit, need wisdom to understand how I fit into this church, this thing you're doing to glorify your name. And as you begin to pray and seek that out, you will find that your life now begins to glorify God forever in Christ and in the church. Because this relationship is eternal. You can say, well, I'm not going to that church anymore. Well, guess what? We are still connected. <laughs> I'm leaving the church. Good luck. Good luck. He doesn't let go. Just like with our kids, we don't give up. We don't let go. No, so I'm, I'm leaving. You can't. 
So think about that, okay? And say, God, I want your heart for the church. I want to think about the church like you think about the church. I want to love the church like you love the church so that you will be glorified. Think about this through me, through me, forever. And Christ, forever. And he ties them together. That should blow our minds. So what do we have the privilege of doing today? To be Jesus for a world that's watching. And they're looking for something different. People come into church. And I hear, I, oh, here's my, my ongoing thought. When someone comes into church and hears us expressing with passion and amazement love for God. I wish I could like unconvert for a moment to see it from that perspective. Because it's, for an outsider, I think it's probably weird. Why are they so in love with Jesus? Why do they sing about him so much? Why are they so enthralled, humbled, broken by his presence? Because he loves us. And has brought us into something glorious that is forever. Something that really matters. Father, I pray that you...